there's this trend, and I think I've personally been in this place, and perhaps some of you have been as well, of Christians, Christ followers, coming to, really coming to grips with this notion that we're living in a time of exile right now. Um, I think there's an intellectual reckoning with the situation we find ourselves in, the culture we find ourselves in, the place that we live, the way people think. How did we get here? How did people begin to think the way that they think right now? And how did our culture become the way that it is? But even more so than the uh, recognition intellectually of where we're at, I think in many, and I I put myself in this category, there's a a bit of an emotional response and a feeling um, that perhaps for me in, in my lifetime since I've been following Christ, it feels like we're, it feels like we're in a dark place. It feels like we're losing ground uh, as the church, or at least the type of Christian that I relate to. It feels like that for me for the first time in my lifetime, and that's been really hard. I think that's been really hard for a lot of folks. It's not necessarily new that we're in that place, but it feels that way for many of us. And I want to introduce you to something that I came across recently. Um, you could pull up the next slide here, guys. So there's a 20th century uh, rock star sociologist, if there is such a thing, which there's not. Um, his name's Philip Reif. And I, I, Philip Reif is not a believer. He's not a Christian. Um, I certainly don't know enough about what he has taught even to, to know whether or not I disagree or agree with most of, of what he says. But I think Christians have grabbed a hold of some of his ideas in the way that he's described the history of the West, uh, even over the last few years as we've been coming to grips with some of these things. And Philip Reef presents the history of Western civilization in, in terms of three cultures. And the first is this, it's the pre-Christian culture. The, the culture before the Roman Empire uh, began to be dominated by Christians. Uh, the, the kind of natural culture of the world before the church began to, to uh, make progress all over the world. And that's a culture that's dominated by myth and superstition. It's a tremendously religious culture uh, that's, that's not necessarily rooted in, uh, in truth, but more rooted in superstition. And as the West began to uh, go along over the years, we all know that it became a, Christ- a, a culture that was dominated by Christendom or Christianity. That's not to say that it was completely dominated by Christian ideas or by Christian people, but it was certainly a Christian culture in a sense, at least, uh, in, in that the church dominated the West in the centers of influence and power and thought in the West. And this period of history kind of dominating up into the Enlightenment is uh, a time of uh, looking to monotheistic, monotheistic authority. Uh, this, this superstition was replaced by monotheism, by belief in, in uh, one God. Even if that wasn't the Christian God, that became dominant all over the West. And this is a, a creedal culture, a culture that, that thrived on creed and truth and ideas and authority. And that's certainly not the culture we live in today. And around the time of the Enlightenment, this really began to shift, but we're feeling it 
so much these days. And many over the last 20 years have begun to talk about the fact that we're today in the West in a post-Christian culture, different than a pre-Christian culture. There's a, there's a very stark difference between the two. Our culture has at one time been influenced by Christianity, but it has moved on from the authority of the Bible, from monotheism, um, from the creedal truths. And this post-Christian culture, is, it's, it's got to be dominated by something, right? We have to seek after something. We have to go after something. And in so many ways, our culture today, post-Christian culture, is dominated by irreligious desire. This is perhaps an oversimplification, but I think it could be helpful for us in that recognizing that we're living in a world that not only rejects biblical orthodoxy, that is kind of the standard way of seeing the Bible, it defines itself against biblical norms. Sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, it was a widespread rejection of the Christian biblical sexual ethic. It defined itself in so many ways by what it was not, by what it was moving on from, by what it was rejecting. The massive shift in public opinion over the last 10 years on, on homosexuality and the definition of marriage that we're, we're still kind of in that tidal wave. I, I, we're not through it yet. We're in, in the midst of it. Um, this massive, massive shifting of public opinion. This revolution, in a sense, defines itself against the biblical sexual ethic. Authority in our cultural context, in the post-Christian cultural context, has been replaced by desire, individual desire, as long as that desire does not infringe on the desires of those around you. Here's the irony, and we could talk so much more about this, but this is just to kind of get us started. Here's the irony. What is the fruit of post-Christian culture? What is, what is the fruit? Technology, advancement, um, invention, most definitely. Really, really good coffee. The more, I was looking at a list of just the most post-Christian cities. This, this isn't quite so simple. It's not like everything's post-Christian and everything was Christian a long time ago. But if you look at cities based on what the average person in the population of that city believes, you look at the most post-Christian cities per belief, and they tend to have the best coffee, um, for whatever reason. Really good, you know, $6 donuts, this, this sort of thing. Um, but along with that, there, there may be an appearance of this kind of utopian ideal. When you hang out uh, on High Street on a Saturday night, when you go down and get coffee and donuts at Fox in the Snow, there may be an appearance of wealth and happiness and satisfaction but we know this, this is not the case. It's not the case. The fruit of this way of thinking, the fruit of this way of life, the fruit of where our culture has, has moved is also depression and anxiety and worry, brokenness. People who no longer know how to relate to other human beings, people who no longer know how to resolve conflict and have intimacy with one another, broken marriages, broken families, abortion, violence. 
in, in atmosphere in which people have such a hard time engaging with and believing anything good about someone who holds a, a different opinion politically than themselves. This is just some of the fruit of this post-culture or post-Christian culture that has at its very core desire driving it, personal desire with the shackles of authority gone. There's no longer any authority to which we must submit, just the authority of our own desire. The irony is that that pursuit is futile and it has borne fruit that is rotten. There's, there's no pleasure at the end of the rainbow that is um, the, the pursuit of pleasure as an end in, in and of itself. And I, I want to argue tonight that the pursuit of pleasure, it's, that's like the air we breathe culturally. We can't escape it. We can't get away from it. It doesn't matter how many times we come to church, how many times we come to small group. Uh, it is the air we breathe. And that that pursuit in and of itself, just by itself, as a means to, as, as an end, leads to despair. The pursuit of pleasure in and of itself leads to despair. But the pursuit of God, here, here's the irony of all this. The pursuit of God, the submission to his authority, leads to pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure in and of itself leads to despair, but the pursuit of God truly leads to genuine pleasure. This should not surprise us. Jesus himself said something similar and better, much better worded than what I just said uh, in Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is counterintuitive in our flesh, but we all know it to be true, right? When we lose our life, when we lay down our life, when we lay down the pursuit of pleasure as the ultimate good and submit to Jesus Christ, we find life like we had never known before. So I wanna just quickly point out a difference in missional engagement. Yeah, could you go back to those circle slides? We in this church often think of mission, and if you've kind of swam in the waters of missionally engaging people, particularly people of a different culture, you might recognize this danger of going with the gospel into this pre-Christian superstitious culture that's not, that does, has no history uh, has no connotation really of Jesus Christ and has no history of, of Christian influence. One of the dangers that we as, as Western Christians have when we go into that culture missionally is to colonialize that culture and, and to take um, Western ideology and, and our, our practices, the way we look, the way we think, um, kind of secondary things or, or completely tertiary things and make those prominent even more so than the gospel so that the kind of the fear or the danger is to westernize people or try to do that as opposed to presenting the gospel in a way that they can understand in their culture without having to, to leave or remove themselves from their culture. Great missionaries like Hudson Taylor in the 19th century, they, they understood this. And so Hudson Taylor, he, he, he did his best to become Chinese when he went to China with the gospel. 
He did his best to become Chinese, and those who worked with the China Inland Mission, they, they had to dress like Chinese and become Chinese because they didn't want to take the, the gospel of, of Europe or America to the Chinese, but the gospel of Jesus Christ in their culture. So that's kind of a danger going into this first circle, but the danger, it, it, it's, it's very different when we are uh, engaging missionally in a post-Christian culture and I, I heard this this last week. This really struck me and resonated with me that the danger for us, because I've, I've seen it, I've seen it in so many ways. The danger for us engaging in a post-Christian culture missionally is for us to be uh, colonized, for us to adopt the post-Christian ethic and worldview because it can be so attractive and appealing. This is the battle that we fight when we try to engage people with the gospel, and, and really, what is a dominant culture? It's the, the, the power centers, the influencers of our culture in the United States of America today, in most cities, and this might not be true all over the place, represent a, a, a post-Christian, irreligious ethic driven by many things, one of which is personal desire and, and happiness. And so there's a real danger of engaging missionally in such a way that we are just inoculated by the worldview and the desires of this post-Christian culture. Hypnotized slowly by the hedonism of our culture. And that is just having pleasure and desire as the, the God above all gods. Well, you know how easy it is. We all do. I think probably most, many, maybe all of us have slipped into that. Uh, in, in different ways throughout the course of our walk with Christ. There, there is another way, though. There is another way. The answer is not to just disengage and to step back and to not be with people and to not take risks and to not move the gospel forward into a difficult culture, whatever that culture may be. That's, that's not the answer. My kind of thesis for tonight, and we're just about to get to uh, Psalm 1, the short psalm that we're going to look at, is that mind and heart submission to God's word, it protects us from being swept away in the cultural tide and bearing the rotten fruit of, post, of the post-Christian worldview. Mind and heart submission to the authority of God's word protects us from being swept away in the cultural tide and bearing the rotten fruit of a post-Christian worldview. The word of God is our rock. It is our rock. It is a solid, solid rock with waves crashing around us. When Christine and I were in Indonesia for two months this summer, I'd never been to a beaches quite like this. People think of in, uh, Bali, Indonesia as just these beautiful, calm beaches. That is an indictment on Instagram culture <laughs> because that is not the way it is at all. Instagram is a lie. Um, we love Bali, but not, not for the calm, beautiful beaches. The beaches, are, they're deadly. I mean, they're absolutely deadly there. So you, you, you go and you're just walking even ankle deep and you feel the riptide pulling you in. You gotta be careful, even in ankle deep water, that you don't get sucked in. And people, people die you know, pretty, pretty regularly in the places that, that we were, even in the airport, don't go in the water near this place. Like, oh gosh. Um, but... The difference between low tide and high tide there was so vast. When it was low tide, you could walk, way, you could walk out for a mile. 
And there are these huge, a place that was, you know, pretty close to where we were staying, these huge rocks, you know, you can climb up and stand on in the low tide. And I just picture these rocks, and people would do that, and we, we'd go out there and explore every once in a while, and they'd stand on these rocks. But when the, the tide comes in, when it comes up, you better believe it. You are clinging to that rock. You're not leaving. The waves are crashing around you, and you've got six different currents going all these ways. If you get off that rock, you will be crushed and annihilated uh, quickly. This is not a place you can just go out. You go out and swim in some of these places, you're dead. That's, that's what's going to happen. And so I have this picture in my mind of this rock, this solid rock that is the word of God as attacks are, are coming and on all sides from all over the place. This is the way the spiritual battle works. This is the way the world is. But we have a solid, solid rock that gives us life in the word of God. I wanna, I'm going to pray here real quick and then read Psalm 1. And we'll talk about Psalm 1 a little bit. Lord, thank you for your word, God. Thank you so much uh, for your goodness. Thank you for your pursuit of us, Lord. Pray that you would help every one of us to, to recognize where we're at, to recognize the culture in which we live, to recognize the power and the authority and the goodness of the word of God. Lord, and I pray that we would be a community that stands firm together on the word of God. Speak to us, God. Speak to our minds and our hearts through your psalms tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's read all through Psalm 1. It's just six verses here. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Blessed is the one. What, what does it mean to be blessed? It's not a word we always throw around. What does that mean? We're talking about the pursuit of pleasure, this gift from God. It can't be pursued as a God, but it can certainly be received from the God who gives it freely. To be blessed, it's happiness. We, we can look at a definition, and that's really helpful. I think the best way to, to land at what, what does this word really mean is just to look at how, it's, how is it used in the Psalms, how is this exact Hebrew word used in the Psalms, and you see that it's to be happy. It's to be filled with joy. It's to taste and see the goodness of God, to know him, to have intimacy with him. It's to know the power of complete and total forgiveness, to have confidence that one's sins have been removed and swept away, is to be blessed. It is pleasure, real, true, honest, authentic pleasure. And we see this psalm starts kind of in the negative. Blessed is the one who does not. Blessed is the one who does not. 
Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. You see in these three things a sort of progression of seriousness, to walk in step with the wicked, to to share values, to stand side by side um, metaphorically with those who are uh, not living for God, who are opposed to the teachings of God and to the authority of God, to stand in the way that sinners take is to be on a path of sorts, to be moving. Okay, I've, I've begun to adopt some values and practices from the world, from, from those who are opposed to God and his teachings and his revelation. Now I've begun to act on those beliefs and those values. I'm now going down a path that is not the path of life and that's not the path of God. My beliefs have turned to practices. And this, this third uh, part of the progression is to sit in the company of mockers. And, and this is kind of the end of the road where now I, I really identify with those who are opposing God in such a way that it, it, I, I can make fun. I can laugh. I mean, this is who I was before I came to Christ. I, I, I laughed at Christianity. Guys, when someone tried to introduce me to DC Talk, um, they gave me the tape, Jesus Freak. And I, I can't tell you right here, um, I cannot tell you what I said to them. <laughs> it wasn't very nice. Um, I, I, I mocked Christianity and mocked the things of God. Um, and I just, I was so represented um, this just vile derision of things that are good and things that are from the Lord. To sit in the company of mockers is to, to give up to fully identify with those who are in opposition to God. To make fun of, you think Jesus, you think Jesus is coming back to earth and he's going to raise the dead? You really think that? (laughs) There are many, I mean, many, it's just, it's a little easy to make fun of this day and age. You really think that a 2,000-year-old book should cause me to make decisions in my life? about uh, what I do sexually or financially or what I do with my time. Um, how absurd, how ridiculous. This, there's a progression that kind of leads us into a place that we can join in making fun of what's good and what's right. And I've been there. Trust me, I was leading the charge in so many ways. Well, we begin to see in verse two um, that that's not all this psalm is about. We see what, characterize, what characterizes the life of the man or woman who is blessed by God, who has joy and happiness and contentment and knows the forgiveness of God. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on his law day and night. Now, you, you might hear that phrase and, and wonder, why is it talking about the law? You know, we normally say the Bible. We don't normally use that phraseology when we're talking of the whole of Scripture. But you've, you've got to recognize that when the Psalms were being written, the book of Matthew didn't exist yet. First uh, Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians hadn't been written. It was much, much later. And so the psalmist is talking about the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. 
But the principle is applicable to the whole of Scripture. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who delights in the Scriptures, who delights in the authoritative teaching that is the specific and authoritative revelation of God. This shows us what we need to know about who he is. The stars, nature itself can show us that there's a God. It can show us that God is creative. It can show us that God is all-powerful. He's a brilliant designer. But God's decisive revelation to mankind, it came through the person of Jesus Christ, and it came through his holy scriptures. Can you, can you relate to that? Delighting. This is literally to take pleasure, to take pleasure in the word of God. Just consider maybe where you're at or where you've been at in the past or where you'd like to be. Can you relate to that right now? To really take pleasure when you pick up the Bible at church or on your own or in community in a home group. Is, does that feel like a delightful thing? For you to do? Does that feel pleasurable for you to do? I, 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 hope, that, um, I hope that for many the answer is, is yes, it does. It does, it has, and it does. I, I, I fear that for many of us, the answer to that question is a resounding no. And if that is if that is true, if that characterizes where you're at right now, I want to just encourage you, and I, I'm speaking myself somewhat here as well. There's, I think there's been a theme in my life recently of God just showing me my, my desire for him, my depth and my intimacy with him, my love for the word. There's, there's some real growth, some real serious growth that uh, I think God is, is he's, he's shown me that I, I need and that I want. But I want to encourage you, if, if, that, if the answer is a resounding no for you, that there, there is more. There is more. This is not your lot in life to pick up the Bible and just be super, super bored by it forever. That's not God's desire for how we would interact with him through his word. He wants us and commands us to delight. I mean, to literally find it pleasurable to be in his word, to be interacting with him, to be hearing from him. And we'll get a little bit into some practicals later on. To, to meditate on the word of God is to chew on it, to think about it, to let it consume you. We don't have any trouble meditating on the things of the world, right? No one has to, I'm, I'm guessing, no one has to tell you to be on your iPhone more. You know, you get that, you guys get the screen time alert? Some of you guys get that? Once a week, there's a little alert that can tell you how much you've averaged. Anybody get that? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, does anyone ever get that and think, you know, I really need to step up my game. I just need to be on my phone more often. I really, I really need to grow in that way. I don't think so. It's just very natural for us. It's very natural for us to meditate on the things of this world, to just become obsessed with things maybe that are fine, that there's nothing wrong with them. But they're not good, they're not righteous, they don't give us life. <clears throat> Ultimately, they can even tear us down. It's very, very natural for us. Um, 
God would have us meditate, chew on, be dominated by in our thought, in our speech, the word of God, to, to read it out loud. This, this word kind of gives that impression of out loud, reading, meditating on it, chewing on it, singing it. This is some of what we do in worship. We sing the promises of God. We, we, we want to have lots of scripture in our songs that we sing to the Lord and to one another to help us just engage with and meditate on the truth of God's authoritative word that is so good and life-giving and awesome. I, I don't want to be under this illusion myself, and I, I, I really, I don't want any of us to be under the illusion that if we skim through a few Bible verses or read a sentence in a, um, a devotional, even every day, if we check it off the list, well, then surely all of the promises of Psalm 1 and all of the promises of Psalm 119 and these great portions of Scripture that talk about how believers ought to engage with God's Word, surely they, they must apply to me because I've, I've checked the box off. God does not want us to have a cavalier or casual kind of side relationship with him through his word, but to be dominated by it, to be thinking about it when we go to bed, to be engaging with him in his word when we wake up, to be talking about it with others, to be talking about it in our families, over the dinner table with our kids, to show our kids the, the Bible is not just something you go to class for, but the, it has changed our lives. We love it. We stand on it. We could not go without it to show them our love for the word by talking about it. I think these are some of the things that God has in mind and, and Psalm 1 leads us in that direction. Verse 3, that person who meditates on God's word day and night, chews on it, who delights in it, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Man, I want to be that person. I want to be that person who can withstand the trials of life. This tree watered by the stream, not completely dependent upon the rains, that can last through the season change, that can last through the drought, its leaf does not wither and die through trial. There's, there's a, a personal sturdiness that it comes from putting our hope in the word of God. And I, I think the reason for that is that so many things in this world, really all things in this world, at the end of the day, they disappoint. At the end of the day, they die. At the end of the day, they don't quite live up to the hype. God's word will never fail, and God is faithful to his promises. When we put our hope in God's word, truly, authentically, I'm not just singing the songs, I'm not just saying the words, but in my mind and in my heart, my ultimate hope is in the word of God. It's not in this guy or this girl over here. It's not in awakened church. It's not in my pastor. It's not in the state of evangelical Christianity. It's in the word of God. When that is true, when that is true of us, I think God through his spirit is moving us closer and closer to that place. 
we will have a sturdiness and be able to withstand droughts and trials, and they are coming. Every single one of us is gonna have tremendous difficulties and trials in our lives. Don't think for a second that this passage is saying, read the Bible and you'll have no trials. Okay, this is, this is not a prosperity gospel church. We don't believe the prosperity gospel. We don't believe that you can speak things into existence and avoid trials and difficulties in your life by, um, by adhering to the Bible or by reading the Bible or by praying certain kind of prayers. Please don't read this psalm as saying, you will be spared trial if you love the word. That's not the promise of Psalm 1. And we, we see that really as it goes on here in verses 4 and 5. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. So as, as opposed to the tree that, that is planted by the water. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And this is where the psalm turns uh, eschatological, like it turns towards, and that, that, that means kind of the study of, of the last things, it, tend, it, it turns toward the end of the day, the end of the story. This might not always appear to be true. It might appear that I'm just, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the right thing day after day. And it's just a struggle. It's hard. All these trials, uh, uh, cancer, natural disaster, financial ruin. My kids aren't the way that I thought they would be. It might appear that the promises of God are delayed. It might appear that the wicked, those who hate God, those who care nothing for his word, man, they're getting rich. And they seem really happy. These people over here seem so happy. They seem like they've got it all. They're doing yoga three times a week. They're uh, drinking the $4 cups of coffee. I love $4 cups of coffee. I'm, I'm not judging those people. Yoga, that's not for me. Um, don't have the flexibility. Um, it might appear like the wicked are prospering, but at the end of the day, God is going to bring judgment upon the earth at the end of the day, and the wicked will not be able to withstand that judgment. They, um, they will not be able to be a part of the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes back to consummate his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth will live with him in the holy city if you're a follower of Christ. Those who are wicked will, will not be able to, they will be excluded from the kingdom of God. This is a narrative that really runs through the whole of Scripture all the way to the end of the book of, of Revelation, the, the last chapter of Scripture written by the Apostle John, that at the end of the day, there will be blessing, reward, and judgment. And that should excite us and, and terrify us both at the same time. Verse six, just as, the, just as the wicked will suffer in judgment, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Again, there's, there's two, I think we've seen this really clearly if you've been paying attention at all to the passage. There's two very distinct camps. 
There's those that are on the way of life, and there's those that are on the way of death. And if you're anything like me, I think you may read this psalm for the first time and think, well, there's two choices here. And it doesn't make me really happy every time I pick up the Bible. It feels difficult oftentimes to read. And I, I can think of a few times in my life that I was not meditating on the word of God. This is not something I'm in the habit of doing day and night right now. So where does that leave us? I think we have to recognize this as we read this passage. No one can really do. Verse 2. No one can really fully do that. And I don't know if that sounds disappointing to, to you. I think to me it's, it's, it's freeing, recognizing I am too weak to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on it day and night. There's, there's one person who has fulfilled this, who has done this, who could answer yes to every question, every ethical question that comes out of the Old Testament, and that is the person Jesus Christ. He has done this perfectly for us. And so I want to ask the question, how does one identify with the way of life? You have these two paths that are presented in Psalm 1, as they are often throughout the scriptures. How does one identify with the way of life, knowing that no one in this room, no one in this room could say, yeah, I've done that, totally. I delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his day, on his word, day and night. If you answer that question with like a confident, yeah, that's, that is me, then I would like to smack you in the face. If you're a man, if you're a woman, I can't do that. Um, but I will judge you severely. Um, we can't do that. But there's one who's done that on our behalf. And do you know, if, if you have bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and you've come to know him, he sees you in that way. He's your defender against accusation. He's not picking you apart right now in some malicious way. Hey, you really suck. You are so bad at reading the Bible. You've been in the church for 15 years. You've never, you haven't opened your Bible in the last three months. This, this kind of tone, this kind of voice, this bitterness, this is not how the Lord interacts with his people. Because as a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been given the righteousness of Christ. And so in a sense, you can answer the question, yes. Because Jesus has done this for me. Yes. And then the journey is growing and becoming in our daily lives more and more like Jesus Christ. This is the journey that he has us on. So how does one identify with the way of life? Number one is to know Jesus. We have to, to, to come to know Jesus. We have to bow our knee to him. We have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And, and the New Testament explains that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved from the judgment of God, from the penalty of sin. We will be saved from a life without God. And we will be brought into his family. So we can have, 
have no hope to follow this, really, without knowing Jesus. Number two, make a decision about the Bible, okay? Are you going to be the type of person who stands in judgment over these 66 books? You stand in judgment over it. In one way or another, your criticism leads you to reject certain parts and hold on to certain parts. Maybe conveniently the parts that are hard to live out are some of the parts that get rejected. Parts that seem a little easier to live out, a little more arbitrary, are the parts that get accepted. Maybe the parts that stand against the ethos of our culture, that stand in contrast, maybe those are the parts that get thrown out or not thought about, not mentioned. And the parts that that just go right in line with the... our, Our culture has so many things that flow out of the Christian worldview. It's kind of like trying to to follow Jesus without Jesus, trying to be the kingdom without the king. And so some of those parts, okay, I can hold on to those that, that are acceptable, they're okay. Are you going to be a person who stands in judgment on the word of God or are you going to be a person who lets the word of God judge your heart and your minds? Where your mind and your heart are conformed to the teaching, the authoritative teaching of God through his word. I want to encourage every person in this room to make that decision and to be, to be honest with where you're at. To be honest, I think there are a few things, there are a few places to be worse than someone who says, yeah, the Bible, I love the Bible. The Bible's awesome. And here's what it is. It's a book of this and that. And then they go on to explain something that is not what the Bible is. I think there are a few places that are, are to be that are worse than giving lip service to the teaching of God, but never being willing to bow your knee to the teachings that are just difficult for you personally. That are, they're just tough. They're tough because of your own heart and your own sin and the things you want to do and the desires you have, or they're tough because of the culture that is standing against um, certainly some of, of what the scriptures teach. I want to encourage you to make a decision to submit to the Bible, to let it be your judge, and really what you're letting is you're letting God refine you, speak to you, move you, lead you, and to engage with the Bible. I mean, to really engage with it. Guys, it is, it's just hard sometimes. It's, and and it's, it has become harder. I mean, honestly, I, for me, I think it was easier to engage with the Bible when I was 19 than I'm 34, 15 years later, 15 more years of maturity um, and just incredible wisdom. No, yeah, 15, I've, I've grown in 15 years in so many ways. I look back to my 19-year-old self and I was an idiot. Um, but it was easier in some ways to really engage with the Bible because there was less noise. I don't even think I had gone to a red box yet when I was 19. Uh, 
we were going to campus video on North Campus to rent DVDs, maybe even a VHS, I don't know. There was so much less noise and competition. And we need to recognize how much our culture has changed. And it's just, it's harder to read the Bible now. We read the Bible, many of us on our phones, stuff pops up, we get distracted, we start looking on Facebook, whatever. It's just harder. And I think it's helpful to admit that and just ask, just ask for God's help. Ask for his grace because we don't need the Bible any less than we did 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. We don't need it any less. If anything, if anything, because Christians really ought to be swimming against the tide of culture and, and Christians needed to swim against the tide of culture then and in the 18th century West and really at all times. But we need to swim against the tide of culture. We need the life that comes from the word of God. I, I want to be desperate for it. And I, I think many of you want the same thing. We've got to make the decision and ask God to help us. I will be a man and I will be a woman who engages with the word of God. Not just when it's convenient. Not just at church. Not when I'm forced to, of my own volition, engaging with the word of God in my personal life, in my family, in my relationships, in my church, in my home group. The third thing is to really grow and identify with this way of life, meditating and desiring, taking pleasure in the word of God. We do have to say no to something. We can't just fit Jesus in to the lives we lived before we came to know him or the lives we would be living if we didn't know him. We can't just fit him in. We've got to say no to some things. I mean, just practically, we've got to have some time. We've got to have some time to engage in his word, to be in worship, to be in church. This is a time to meditate on God's word, to be at home group. We've got to say no to things that are, there's nothing wrong with. Of course, we need to say no to things that you know, we're commanded to flee from. But we've got to say no to some, some things that are okay. And even at times, some good things. So that we can be people who are really engaged actively in an intimate relationship with God and his word. And the last thing I just want to encourage us with to, to close here. Is that we refuse to settle. We refuse to settle. Are your times reading the word dry right now? Does it feel like just nothing's happening? I can't really, I'm not experiencing the presence of God. If you're not in that season, you will be in that season. And then hopefully you'll, you'll move out of it. But we can follow the example of the psalmist, and, and we've seen some of these things recently, to not settle. Don't settle for just rote reading. Don't settle for lack of engagement with God. Don't settle for... Uh, reading through Psalm 1 and then, you know, five minutes later, if someone asks you, what, did you read the Bible today or what, what, what were you reading or thinking? What was that like? You know, honestly, I just did it. I have no idea. I have no idea even what I read. You know, I know we, we go through seasons like that and I go through more seasons like that than I would care to admit, but we cannot settle because that's just not enough. That's not what Psalm 1 is describing. God is inviting us into a rich, pleasurable, enjoyable, intimate fellowship with him in his word where we understand it. 
and when we, where we receive life from it. So the encouragement is to refuse to settle, and then on the other hand, just don't give up. Don't settle for what is, is lesser, for just, as Chris said last week, for just obedience. Don't settle for just obedience. I'm just obeying, and my heart's not really in it. But wherever you're at, don't, don't give up. If you're not there, maybe it takes you a year, two, three, I don't know, I hope a day, to get to a place where your heart is engaged with the word and it's enjoyable and pleasurable. But however long it takes you to get there, it is worth the journey. Because these, these are the words of life, submitting to the authority of God and his scripture. It leads us to a land of plenty and joy, rich fellowship, intimacy with him, and pleasure. It, this, is, this is what we want, right? We want pleasure. We want pleasure. We've got to know the Lord, ask him, and trust. He wants to give that to you. You believe that? He loves you. He knows you. He knows how you tick. And he wants to give you intimacy and pleasure. I'm going to close uh, in prayer here. And we're just experimenting here a couple weeks, not having music after the message. Uh, please don't stone me um, if you're real upset about that. But what I'm going to do is I want to invite the prayer team up. And if there's something on your mind, just something going on in your life, something you want prayer for, someone you want to pray for, you can come up and pray with the prayer team and these chairs up here. Uh, or you could pray with, with uh, someone next to you. Um, I'm going to pray here in a moment. But can we this week, can we press in? Press into the Lord. Press into his word. Start by just opening it up. Opening it up. God, I'm here. Show yourself to me. Speak to me. Help me. That's a beautiful, beautiful start. And I think pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, God. I think of my life, just how, uh, just how wrecked it would be in so many ways without the wisdom, without the teaching, the direction from your word. I was so lost, God. Um, and I need it desperately. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. God, that you'd give us a zeal for your word, a desperation for your word. God, help us to know how to submit to your word, Lord. Our very way of thinking, Lord, our way of life, Lord, not just the propositions, not just the things we believe, but the way we live, God. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ as his disciples, Lord. And I pray that, um, Lord, you would bring about revival as we engage with you, as we're in your word, even this very week, Lord. I ask for breakthrough, tremendous breakthrough in our lives. God, as we press into you, help us to do that. Help us to have the courage and the discipline to press in, Lord, and, and, uh, and I, I do pray for every person that does that this week, that they, even in the immediate, Lord, this week, Lord, I, I ask that you would give them just pleasure and joy in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.